When my daughters were younger, one of their favorite animated movies was Tangled. It was based on Rapunzel. And the animators make the guy who rescues Rapunzel, you know, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your long hair, right? So the guy who rescues Rapunzel, well, they make him out to be a good-looking, suave, shifty, con-man thief. And his name was Flynn Rider. And there's this scene where Flynn and Rapunzel are escaping, and they wind up in this bar with all these big, mean-looking, burly men. And as Rapunzel sings about her dream, she breaks down the hearts of these guys who also begin singing about their dreams. But Flynn Rider is kind of staying out of it. So they approach Flynn Rider and they ask, well, what is your dream? And very calmly, with all these big, mean men surrounding him, Flynn just calmly says, sorry guys, I don't sing. And at that point, all of them draw their swords and point them at the throat of Flynn Rider. Well, a few years ago, that has become a popular meme. If you've seen it, it's a cartoon character with perfect hair, looking calmly with all these swords drawn at his throat. And typically, this meme is used because you're about to share an unpopular opinion. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know that I'm pretty active in the Twitter education community. I'm typically on there every day posting something at CoachCullen411. Many of the topics for my episodes on the Parent-Teacher Conference have come from either tweets that I have agreed with on education or tweets I've disagreed with. Recently, an educator posted the Flynn Rider unpopular opinion meme and asked, what opinion about education will have you like this? And it's the picture of Flynn Rider with the swords at his throat. Now, of course, today we typically don't have swords, but we do have knives, maybe even little pocket knives. So on this episode of your parent-teacher conference, I am going to share some educational thoughts that if I were to say them at a teacher conference or even post them on Twitter, it may not be swords out, but it could be knives out. parent-teacher conference, where a 24-7 parent and full-time teacher discusses issues and concerns from both points of view in an attempt to bridge the gap for the sake of kids. So relax, grab a coffee or other comfort drink, and let's talk about it. Hello and welcome to your parent-teacher conference. This is Coach Cullen, your host. And the knives that will be out will be figurative. And it might not even just be teachers. Maybe I'll say something today that parents may want to pull their figurative knives out on me. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It'll sharpen your views or perhaps convince you that 
maybe how you see things isn't the right way. So at the end of this episode, if you feel challenged and you know of other teachers or parents or people like me who are, who are a parent and a teacher who may enjoy the challenge, please feel free to text this out to friends. All you have to do is go to whatever podcast app you're listening to this to. And on the bottom, there's there's usually a box with an arrow pointing up. You click on that. It'll say, like, copy link. You copy it. You can text it out. Of course, you if you found this on Twitter, you can retweet it. Found it on Facebook on the Parent Teacher Conference podcast. You can share it out on your Facebook page as well. You can just tell your friends. Go to the Parent Teacher Conference podcast. We're on Google Podcast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Tell them to look for the Parent Teacher Conference podcast. It'll be the guy with the baseball hat on with a coffee mug covering his mug. And look for the episode called Knives Out. And of course, as always, if you're challenged by something I say today, or maybe you even agree with me, please feel free to email me at ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. That's P as in parent, T as in teacher, C as in conference podcast, 411, all one word, ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. All right, what we've been waiting for. The first statement I'm going to make about education that there are teachers out there that may pull out their knives figuratively. The progressive view of education has hurt teachers, not helped them. I can imagine those figurative knives being pulled on me right now as I said that. So where I'm going to start is something I've addressed before, the view of human nature. The way I understand it is this. There are, there are two major competing views of why we do wrong things or why we do evil. One view is that it resides inside of us, that we're born that way. In religious circles, it's often called original sin. But the reason we choose to do bad things is because it comes from inside of us. That tends to be the more conservative view. Now, the liberal view tends to be that we are by nature good. And what makes us choose evil are the constraints that society places upon us. Some will also say that the liberal view tends to be about change, where the conservative view tends to be about tradition. So in education, I would say the progressive view would see the child as the most pure, right? Because the child has been less affected by society. And because the child is born good, and evil comes from outside of the, of the child, that we shouldn't encumber the child with our own demands. This is one of the reasons why, if you ever go on educational Twitter, or edu Twitter, as I called it, a big bad word, which also may have some knives pulled out of me figuratively right now, is compliance. You don't want to teach to kick compliance. You're putting chains. At Rousseau's view, if you know anything about Rousseau's philosophy, you're putting chains upon that child. If we let the child to be free, they will make the right decisions. The reason they make bad decisions is because we are trying to force our chains upon them. And I would say there is a difference between a liberal and a progressive. Most 
teachers are going to be liberal. That, that's a known fact. But I don't believe most teachers are progressive. And if students are truly pure, any attempt to hinder their self-expression, which is pure, is our bad. The teachers, the adults in the room. And then you got a question, who really is the adult in the room? We can just look at things as simple as the dress code or lack of dress code or behavior or consequences for bad behavior or the lack of consequences for bad behavior. And I know some educational schools where, who are preparing teachers are, are no longer teaching classroom management techniques because it falls into this ideology. Now, some of the people addressing this may not see it that way, but it truly is. So listen, so what they're doing saying is this to a student in college studying to be a teacher. They're saying, we don't need to teach you classroom management. We don't need to teach you how to control a class, to keep, keep students quiet so you can learn how to address misbehavior. What you need to do is give good lessons because if you give a good lesson, if you create good lessons every day, engaging lessons every day, the child will want to learn. Do you see that progressive view of the child there? Because they're pure and they're good. They're going to want to do the right thing. The reason they, they misbehave isn't a problem with them. The reason they misbehave is a problem with the teacher. Thus, you provide them with engaging lesson. You never have to worry about their misbehavior, which is basically an expression of your bad teaching anyhow. I did find a blog post that was posted about 10 years ago from the point I was making this episode. It's from May of 2013. It is from the Association for Supervision and Curriculum Development. That's about 125,000 members. This is a pretty big deal organization in the educational world. And the blog post says, five steps to create a progressive student-centered classroom. So see if what I'm about to read you sounds just like what I just stated about the regressive view of classroom management. Of the five, I'm going to go down to number four. Eliminate rules and consequences. Is that sounding familiar already? The workshop environment of a bustling student-centered classroom encourages a pursuit of learning that allows little time for disruption. Set the tone from the first day of the school year by eliminating all discussion of rules and consequences. So you don't have any classroom management. There are no rules. There are no limits. Explain that your learning environment is built on mutual respect and quest for knowledge, so there won't be any time for any behavior issues. Keep activities engaging, and behavior will never be an issue. And every teacher I work with will tell you that is a crock of... You can fill the blank. Um, this was written by a man named Mark Barnes. And Mark is a 20-year classroom teacher and creator of the results-owning learning environment, a progressive student-centered classroom. And again, I've been a teacher for 30 years. I guess this guy is now a teacher for 30 years at this point, right? Uh, it's not true. Uh, you can have the most engaging lesson ever, and it may not hit every student. It's Again, but where does it come from? It comes from this idea is that the child is naturally good. He wants to learn. It's you're the problem not him or her. And if you listen to my episode on why teachers are quitting, this is one of the reasons. They don't feel like there are rules, or actually the rules aren't followed. There are no consequences. There are no limits.
and they're getting frustrated by the lack of classroom management. So here is a man who was spreading this idea 10 years ago, and he wasn't the only one. Most likely, he received the idea from a college or university he was attending, maybe at a master's level, if not the undergrad. He's now promoting this. Principals who subscribe or are members of that organization start beginning to implement the ideas over the next 10 years. And of course, the true believers in this approach start becoming college professors themselves, training the next generation of teachers. And they fill young teachers with this myth that the kids in your class want to learn. You're the issue. You're the one getting in their way because you're not creating engaging lessons. And so what's happening, you have young teachers entering the classroom without any training, any discussion of classroom management because it's unnecessary. And they're finding out the brutal reality. It's just not true. And what do they do next? They start questioning, should they even be a teacher? And to say to all those teachers, well, that's because your lessons aren't engaging is pretty asinine, if you ask me. On another episode, I made the distinction between a progressive and a liberal. And a listener reached out to me and asked for a little bit more explanation. And this is what I told her. I said, liberal and progressive both believe in change. We're a conservative and a far-right hold-on to tradition. The difference, I said, was the progressive has to keep changing. And if you don't keep changing with the progressive, then you're to the right of them. And thus, you're a conservative. Or at least you're treated like one. And we'll get to some real-life stories in a minute about that. And the one thing I would also say is that the progressive is uncompromising, just like somebody on the far right. The, you know, the two extremes of the political equation tend to be very uncompromising. And I would say even to the point that both extremes are dogmatic and see their role as evangelist of the holy writ of what they say. Two people in particular I'll address that you may have heard of, they're not educators, but you'll see my point here. One is Bill Maher. He's a comedian. He has a show on HBO. I enjoy Bill Maher. I don't agree with him on much, but I enjoy the fact that I appreciate his humor, and I appreciate that he has people on his show all the time that he disagrees with. And at times, the person he disagrees with, and he will find points of agreement. And that's how life should be. But... Recently, he has felt the progressive, he's addressed it, that the progressive movement is going too far. There's a limit, even to his change. And he's often said that the progressives are getting as crazy as the far right. And of course, now he's being labeled a conservative, and it by no means is Bill Maher conservative. The other person who is liberal, has been liberal for years, still is liberal, is Barry Weiss. Now, you may not have heard of her. She's a journalist. She was the culture and politics editor for the New York Times in the late teens. She famously wrote an editorial called, We're All Fascists Now, 
that discuss the increasing intolerance, not of the right during the age of Trump, but of the far left or progressives. She famously left the New York Times and wrote a scathing resignation because she felt that her job was to get, she was actually brought into the New York Times to bring in more diverse views rather than just go whole hog to the left. And again, she was a liberal, but she was a classic liberal, just like Marr, saying, I believe I'm right, but I'm gonna give you the opportunity to share what you believe, and we're gonna discuss it out. And I believe in the end, my view is going to win the day. But I, my view doesn't win the day by just having me shut you up because you're to the right of me politically. She accused the Times of unlawful discrimination, hostile work environment, and constructive discharge. What that means is the hostile work environment, since they did nothing, in a sense they were allowing it because they wanted her to resign. She accused the Times of getting much of their editorial direction from views on Twitter. And at that time, Twitter, I can tell you from the educational world, Twitter was a, the home for the progressive educator. For Weiss, she felt it was home for progressive thought in general. And at times was reaching into Twitter this, to get their guidance of what their editorial should be about. As she wrote in her resignation letter, quote, Twitter is not on the masthead of the New York Times, but Twitter has become its ultimate editor. Now, why did I bring this all up? I got into politics because that is something that you need to understand. I don't think a lot of teachers do. Many teachers in their prep courses to become teachers in college are reading a book written in the 1970s by a progressive ed educator from Brazil named Paulo Freire. And the book is called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And in it, I mean, the famous quote from the book is, all teaching is political. And I'm going to read you a tweet from a more progressive teacher that I followed on Twitter. Yes, so many teachers don't get this. Teaching is a political act. Teaching is resistance. Teaching is about revolutionary love for our students and for our world. Good teaching is emancipatory. You hear that quote from Paulo Freire in that tweet, don't you? And if teaching, if you see teaching as a political act, that's why I'm talking in terms of like political terms here. Because if you see teaching as a political act, well, then you can't get upset when those on the other side of the political spectrum start stepping up and be political as well. And that is the problem right now. You have progr progressive educators like this tweeter who I just read and many like her. Then you have the far right running for school boards. And like I said, the progressive are uncompromising, the far right are uncompromising. And then you have us, liberals, moderates, conservatives in the middle, who all we wanna do is teach. We wanna teach our curriculum because we love it. That's why we became teachers. We loved kids and we loved the curriculum, the subject that we present to them on a daily basis. That's what it's all about. And we're not trying to express the far right agenda or the far left's agenda. We don't like the views of the progressive that lead to the kids being sovereign over every situation in the school rather than the more scientific view that says 
children's minds are developing and they need mentors alongside of them, of which teachers are one. But the most important are the parents. And yes, in very rare occasions, the parents aren't parenting. But in most occasions, they are. But on the other hand, you have people on the other side of the political spectrum racing to get on school boards to pass policies to hold progressive educators in check, thinking that every educator is like that wacko you saw on TikTok. And we're not. And what is happening now is you have teachers who are in the middle. For example, some school boards in the state that I teach in New Jersey are passing policy on controversial issues, codifying things that that I hold to already. You know, as I look over some of these controversial issues, it says things you got to give a balanced view. You shouldn't share your personal view with the student. The topic should be age appropriate. These are all things I have done for over 30 years as a teacher. But now we're codifying good teaching when it should have been just good teachers all along. And teachers feel in the middle, feel they're being punished. Like, we do that already. Why do you need a policy on it? Well, you need a policy on it, not because of the teacher in the middle, but because of because of a progressive evangelistic teacher that may be in your district. And now you have teachers expressing their anger towards the boards who are passing these policies, asking them, why are you questioning my professionalism? And as I wrap up my first Knives Out moment here, I think the solution is for local school districts to strip away all the outside forces, the teachers unions, the activists from both political sides of the aisle, just strip it all away and meet as a community, the board, the teachers, because the outside forces just want to see your district as a win for them. And they'll go scorched earth. They don't care. When they're gone, as long as they got their win, they don't care what kind of damage they did. But you're going to have to live with the damage. Both parents, represented by their local school board, and teachers. It's time to do right rather than to be right, which is typically only being right in our own eyes. The next Knives Out statement I'm going to make, well, it's actually going to be from a tweet that I posted in 2020. And I'll tell you the reaction. Actually, it was, quote, retweeted, meaning that somebody took my tweet, posted it like a picture, and then above it wrote a comment. And I'll share their comment with you as well. Let me get to my original tweet. This is my knives out statement. And for this guy, he definitely pulled his knife on me. Here it goes. Somehow this is controversial, but I don't give a kid a pen or pencil if asked but spend time with them to brainstorm ways to get one. You'd think I was denying a starving kid food. It's a pencil. To which somebody quote retweeted me two words. The first letter of the first word starts with F. The second word is you. I think you know what he said. But that is a very common response. You have educators getting really angry with you that you won't give a kid or pen or pencil. Or even there where I say, I discuss strategies. My strategies are very simple. I say, okay, first thing you do, you don't have a pen or pencil. Now, I'm not going to yell at you for not having a pen or pencil, but I am going to ask you to go find one. So what can you do? You don't want 
the teacher to yell at you. Some classes, they may yell at you. They might deduct points. I don't do that. So maybe ask somebody near you. That's what I used to do. I brought my pen or pencil a lot. Or ask to go to the bathroom. Walk around the hallways. I always find, even as a teacher today, I find pens and pencils always in the hallway because they're dropped. Look around the classroom for a pen or pencil that's been dropped. The point is, you're responsible to get a pencil. You don't have one. Go find one. Or just ask the whole class in general, hey, does anybody have a pen or pencil I can borrow? Like, raise your hand and make a whole class announcement. But it's not my responsibility that you have a pen or pencil. And this is the comment, like, it's as if I'm not being gracious. And that's typically where a teacher comes down. How dare you be so mean? Just give them the pen or pencil. But maybe I'm teaching the student something about responsibility. But I've even heard that approach mocked by teachers. But it's true. And again, where is this coming from? It's coming from that the child is pure and good. You're the problem in not just giving the pencil. It's not like they forgot it on purpose, and nobody's saying that they did forget it on purpose, but they did forget it, and they did need one. And they should have figured it out on their own. That's all I'm saying. I think every teacher's saying that. Even the ones who deduct points, they're saying it's your responsibility. You gotta step up. And I hope what you're seeing is my first Knives Out statement, that whole talk about where does evil or bad come from? Does it come from within or outside of you? does play a big role because it plays a role in this very question, how people approach the don't have a pest pencil question. But I can say another statement that I posted on Twitter, I've seen other people post, that again will get people very angry with you. And that is, I deduct points for late assignments. And again, what teachers will say, their arguments against it are things like, well, you're really not grading the child on the actual assignment by deducting points. My response typically is, it's a requirement, handing it on time. It's just like if I said, write a three-paragraph essay, and the student only writes one paragraph. They lose points. They didn't fulfill the requirements of the assignment. But again, it's that idea that we go back to all the way earlier in the episode where we talk about engaging. If you have an engaging lesson, no child's going to want to misbehave. If you have an engaging assignment, no child's going to want to miss out on doing it and getting it done on time. Have Were these people ever children? When I was a kid, especially in the spring, I would stay outside playing until the 9 o'clock whistle. Our town, it was really cool. Our town at 9 o'clock, there would be a short blast of the fire whistle. And every kid in town knew when you heard that fire whistle, it was time to go home. But of course, that meant I didn't do my homework. So in middle school, we had an hour off for lunch and recess. Often, I was spending 55 minutes of that hour. I would go home, run home, quickly start doing homework. At 12.25, start hustling back to school, get there by 12.30. I procrastinated. I waited to the last moment. We're all like that. And so, and sometimes I forgot to do things. It was on me against this idea of responsibility. But when you don't, when you think the child is closer to pure than the adult, now the problem becomes the adult. It's your fault 
that that child didn't hand it in on time. The other straw man that is typically created by teachers that chastise those of us who deduct points for late work is we're not gracious. We don't show concern. There, maybe there was truly a situation for that child. Yes, yeah, sometimes that's correct and we're gracious. Uh, you can take points off for the kid who deserves to get points off. And you can be gracious to the kid who maybe was rushed to the hospital or one of their parents were and were up all night. And of course, then you have the teachers who say, oh, you should have, you should have due dates at all. Let me tell you my experience with no due dates. It all started on the last day of school before COVID shutdowns, March 13th. It was a Friday because it was Friday the 13th. I'll never forget it. When we started up school totally online for quote unquote 15 days to stop the spread, end quote. As we all know, that didn't occur. Uh, so it was like March 16th. I was giving out these things called ed puzzles. I was giving out readings daily for the child to do, trying to give them about 15 minutes to a half hour worth, worth of work a day. And that's what we were told because we knew that this was going to be a hardship on all the kids, trying to balance it, etc. Well, the end of the third market period was coming up, and I was allowing kids because, again, I understood that this was an adjustment. I wasn't holding kids to due dates. Typically, I would take points off 10%. Uh, not a rolling like every day 10%, one 10% off the grade. But I didn't do that. I just wanted the kids to hand it in. And what occurred was I had more kids not getting an assessment until the very end than ever before. And so now I am working. Now I was working, waking up at three in the morning, creating a lesson to push out on the on my website for the child to my students to work on and on top of that creating these new lessons that had to be totally done online i was grading papers i mean well digital papers and other assignments that were due weeks earlier because i had to get my grades in today i was i was probably working 20 hours and i realized that's the flaw of no due dates kids would take advantage of it and procrastinate, because we all do, and get it done all at once. I changed that for the fourth marking period. I said, no, we're going to, if you don't get it done, I'm sending out an email. Say you have you have a 10% reduction now. You have one week to get it done from this point on, or it's a zero. And you know what happened? I had a whole lot less work to do at the end of the fourth marking period that year. Now, earlier... I talked about the teachers that would chastise me for sharing that I give due dates or hold kids accountable to due dates. And they said, well, what? how about being gracious to a kid? Well, in this situation, how about being gracious to the teacher? And in the end, what we're talking about again is the idea of limits. We do need limits. We do need structure in life. I remember a good friend of mine went to the New Jersey Association of Middle-Level Educators Conference. And she was in a session with a principal. And she said the principal made the whole point of due date that, that he doesn't allow him at his school. He said, because in reality, nobody follows due dates. Yeah, I would like, like to see that when his, one of his teachers said, yeah, I didn't get my grades done on time for the first marking period. What are you going to do about it? You don't give that to the kids. 
it, it uh, he's it's a lie. But in, in, of course, she made the point of, well, that's funny. If I make a car payment late, I get a penalty. What do you mean nobody holds the due dates? And again, going back to what's frustrating teachers about school is this idea of lack of limits. In order for a community to function well, there has to be limits. For a school to function as a school, as a classroom to function as a classroom, as a teacher to function as a teacher for the best for their students, for a student to function as a student, there has to be limits in order for each of them to fulfill the role they are to be. Without that structure, you're not going to get a utopia. You're going to get narcissistic anarchy. All right, now my last knives out statement. Educators with doctorates don't impress me. And I think this one goes back to bad experiences on Twitter as well. Now, first of all, you might be wondering, why did you stay on Twitter then? Because among all the garbage, there were some really good people that I had some really good discussions with. And it allowed me to brainstorm and see new ideas. And you just had a group of people at times that were just real jerks. You kind of wondered if they would excuse that behavior with their own students in the classroom that they were exhibiting on Twitter. But often you would question somebody who had an educational doctorate or and these edu rock stars hated that they they couldn't have any dissent who are you you little peon teacher i have a dr in front of my name you don't now i kind of get it because a lot of these edu rock stars who have their educational doctorates were their career was telling people what to do in the classroom and if you challenge them, you're hurting their, especially if you challenge them in a way they really didn't have much of an answer for, you're hurting their street cred, and that was going to hurt their bottom line. And of course, there are others who out of arrogance flaunt their title just out of pure narcissism. And that's not to say I can't follow people in leadership positions or an authority above me. You know, my current principal is well over a decade younger than me but he's my principal and he doesn't have a doctorate he just has a master's degree that doesn't influence me he was my principal i'll do what he says and my respect for him grew not because of any title but because of the man he is and how he led that's impressive and it's not that i agree with everything but it's like i always said if I want to be the one making the decisions for the school, then I need to go back to school and get my principal certification. And I chose to be a teacher. And I think when I step into the classroom, students should have the understanding that just by the mere title, I deserve a level of respect. And if my students are going to be impressed by me or grow in their respect, that's on me. That's on the job that I'm doing for them. And like my students, no higher degree of education is going to impress me by itself. The, the person is going to impress me. I have a good friend that is in administration, I believe in special education in Pennsylvania right now. I remember when he was studying to be a teacher. He was coming out of school and he was a special ed teacher. He was going 
to get different certifications like in English, science, so that way it would broaden his prospects of getting a job. The one he was having difficulties with was passing the history practice. And I spent, for two months, I spent every Sunday afternoon with him going over different topics from the Praxis book, going a little more in depth, having allowing him to ask me questions, I, me asking his him questions. And he's always told people, I'm the man who helped him get that Praxis done, get it passed. Next time he took it, he passed no problem. And he's a great guy. And he did some amazing things in the classroom. And in the end, he now has a DR in front of his name. But my respect for him, my the fact that I am impressed by him, that all he has done has nothing to do with the DR. My niece, she got her educational doctor before she turned 30. But before she got that doctorate, she was already speaking around the country on ways to use technology in the inclusion classroom. And I am so proud of my niece for achieving that. But getting an educational doctorate doesn't impress me. Who my friend Dan and who my niece Katie are and how they always strove to do what is was best for their students when they were just mere teachers with undergraduate degrees and they continue that right into their administrative roles with the doctorate degree now they hold, that's impressive. The degree means nothing if all you're going to do with it is hold it over people's heads thinking that you're displaying you're smarter than them. To rip off MLK Jr., I don't judge an educator on the level of their degree, but in their ability to show care for and engage with the staff and students they come into contact with. One person who has a doctoral degree is my current superintendent. But that's not why I'm impressed with her. I'm impressed with her ability to juggle finances, staff, parents, the board, all these balls in the air, and she always seems to have a smile on her face. Now, I am sure that the doctoral degree she possesses helped her to achieve her position as superintendent. I have no problem with it. I don't have a problem with people going after doctoral degrees. I'm just saying that that's not what impresses me. Let me share a story about my superintendent to wrap up the episode that I think drives this point home, that it's not the doctoral degree that impresses me, but how she cares for and engages, in this situation, one of the staff members underneath her leadership. It was a summer, and I stopped by school for a minute to get something. I, I don't remember what, but I had my two daughters in tow. And when I say in tow, they were pretty young. I think the one was six, the oldest one was six, and the little one was three. Now, they referred to my boss at the time as my big boss. They also referred to him as the candy man because he often would give them candy. He had always had a stash of candy in his closet. But they always referred to him as my big boss. And he was big. He, 
He stood about 6'5". I'm only 6 foot. So to them, he was really big. He was the big boss. So we're walking through the hallway, and my superintendent turned the corner. She said hi to me, asked me how my summer was going. She said hi to the girls. So I was trying to explain to my young daughters who they were talking to. And I said, you know my big boss? And the girl shook her head. I said, this is the big boss's boss. So she is the big, big boss. And she was laughing as I'm trying to explain her role as a superintendent to my young daughters. And then when I was done, she said this. And I think you're going to agree with me that what she says is more impressive than the DR in front of her name. She looked at my daughters as I was telling them she is my big, big boss. And she laughingly said, no, I'm just a friend who works with your daddy. Thank you for joining me on the Parent Teacher Conference podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this podcast with friends. They can be teachers, they can be parents, they can be someone who's just interested in education and parenting. If you have a comment, a question, or an idea for a future topic, please feel free to reach out to me at ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. ptcpodcast411 at gmail.com. Remember, a good teacher cares deeply for their students, but good parents love those students, their children, deeply.